Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. Um, yet another international edition of Citizen D podcast. With us today is uh, Davy Ottenheimer. He's a vice president of trust and digital ethics at Inrupt, a company striving to restore the power of balance on the web through data decentralization technology. Welcome, Davy. Um, the first question, uh, it, it, let's start with an easy question. So, so uh, let's, let's start with the question of uh, what's wrong with the web today or why do you think the web needs fixing? <laughs> Easy question. Yes. <laughs> well, I think my my take on this so far has been economics mainly. Uh, the, the, what's right with the web is that it has been very successful, pervasive even, in shifting the way that our human lives interact with technology. And ultimately, our human lives are affected greatly by the economics, the forces of economics that we are subject to. Mm-hmm. And so what happened, I think, in two phases was we had the dot-bomb crash in 2000, which led to a massive centralization. The success of the web was that, with all the dot-coms, it proved the, the, the viability of an open standard. You know, people laugh about the web van and the grocery delivery at mm-hmm. that time being such a crazy idea, but today everybody takes it for granted, so it was a great idea. It was just the the business model wasn't clear, and the overinvestment, the overheated investment that led to the crash ultimately meant centralization by wealth preservation uh, forces. The second major factor was during the market crash of 2008, we saw again wealth preservation trying to figure out ways to lock people in. So you get get a centralization effect and then you get a walled gardens. Well, really they call them digital moats, which is a misnomer because moats are meant to protect you from outsiders. This protects the companies that built the castles from people leaving the castles, Mm. which is a jail essentially. So Mm. What's wrong with the web has to do with how market forces were able to take something that was very simple in 1994, or even before 89, if you will, and apply, you know, economics in a way that the technology wasn't really designed or prepared for, and regulators weren't thinking about the future when they were trying to regulate, they never do. They think about how to protect what's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Now we have all that legacy. So regulators are coming in saying, wait, this is not the way to do things, like having a cookie shouldn't mean that your persona ends up being centralized and controlled by someone else. That's basically digital slavery. Mm. But is this, so fixing the web, this is something that uh, that has always been an issue, right? This is not the first time that people who were or who are involved with developing technology and systems online are trying to, to fix the web. So why is it different this time or why does it where does this uh, need to fix the web uh, come from in this uh, period of of let's say time this particular effort is linked to tim berners lee himself sir tim who came up with the, the web really is credited with pioneering the concept of the web we use today and his effort to reinvigorate the web around his core principles that he started with. So it's a it's a move to get it back to what it was meant to be because it's gone off the rails, you know, due to a number of factors, but it can be so much more than it is if we rethink the way that we do the things that we thought we were doing. In, in other words, you know, what's wrong is like saying, how can we fix it? How can we fix it is like saying, where's the pain? Pain is different for different people. For some people, usability is the most important pain. 
you know, the early web had blink tags. It had very little interactivity. It was just links, really, references. Today, people say they're overwhelmed by all the pop-ups and all of the usability has almost become the opposite. They want it to go back to just being a simple link. So pain is relative. You know, for other people, pain is all about privacy. It's all about they can't possibly use anything without all the cookies and trackers and data being sold. So I think what's different here is that, you know, Sir Tim's thinking about it from the, the core principles of what the entire web is for everyone, for all of humanity, how technology suits us best and how we can use it to augment our lives, which is different than you know, all these different little pieces of pain that everybody everybody's always trying to solve. Identity is a pain, pain point, privacy is a pain point, usability, mm. all that stuff. This is everything. Mm. It's almost like a Rorschach test, right? You you ask a you ask a person what's wrong with the web, and whatever he or she is involved with, that pain comes to, to <laughs> his or her mind first, right? Nobody that's, nobody that's has right. the the ultimate answer to the question what's wrong with the weapon. That would be my 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 follow up question: is is decentralization um, really the the solution that that everybody can can then use for for uh, their own benefit in a way. So what what, what do we solve with uh, decentralizing the web? Well, again, it's relative. So the other way of looking at it is, is centralization around the human. And so can you centralize data about you around you? In other words, can you present yourself as authentic in ways you want to and inauthentic in ways you want to, where you control how people see you? That's that's kind of a human right in the sense that the right to be forgotten is such a small piece. It's tip of the iceberg, really, in the right to be understood. To be misunderstood is to be discriminated against, for example, or to be misunderstood is to be incarcerated unjustly. There, there's so many reasons why you want the truth and also why you may want to uh, present a partial or anonymous view of yourself, right? If you're not allowed to speak out, then you use an anonymous form to speak out. Historically, jesters have done this for thousands of years, or, you know, sarcasm is around for this reason. There's a lot of different ways that we need to solve for the human condition using technology that doesn't lock us into things. So mm. that's, that's perhaps for me the most exciting part of this, is that the regulations are behind as they always are, because they're trying to give people the market opportunity to come up with the best ideas. And I think this is a chance for us to really put our foot forward and say there are better ways to do this. We can come up with better ideas ahead of the regulation, but really spurred by the regulations. The regulations are forcing us to come up with a better web, which is mm. great. That's what we want. Mm. So so your your one of your your function is an um, you you're the vice president of, of trust and digital digital ethics. Ethics is something that is popping up or or is appearing to be to be the the way forward as we're um, as we're progressing into the uh, 2021 why is ethics right now such an hot issue where was ethics like 10 15 years ago well i love this question <laughs> because <laughs> i mean i studied ethics way back in my early 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 even in high school you know but by the time i got to college it became one of my majors and mm -hmm. i always looked at technology in a historic context, which is how I ended up getting a history degree. To me, the, the fundamental shift in agriculture, you know, I grew up in the middle of America, surrounded by agriculture, ranchers and farmers and so forth, all my friends, you know, everybody I hung out with, was in this agrarian industry, and I just thought of tractors and 
combines, everything technology related, all the engines, all of the machinery, all the industrialization, all of that fundamentally shifted their lives. And I thought of the internet as the same way. Like, mm. just as the tractor was to the oxen plow, the computer was to the printing press kind of thing. So ethics has always been there, but I think for a lot of people, the rush to build the next technology is so much their focus. They just want to get out the next combustion engine or the next, you know, plow design. They don't think about anything beyond that. The over-specialization is very dangerous. And the American educational system really emphasizes this. If you can build a better bolt, you're rich, retire, end of story, as opposed to, do you have a, a full understanding of the system in which you're about to introduce this bolt? Do you have a, a way of doing critical analysis for why there's demand for this bolt or what it's gonna be used for and how it should be used? Those cognitive abilities, those decision skills are de-emphasized in America. So ethics has always been there for people who study a much fuller version of what knowledge is meant to be. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, they were allowed to over-specialize to the point where they could just focus on, you know, convincing people to buy this thing because it was going to make them rich. And mm -hmm. people selling it were going to get rich, and that was considered success alone. Now, what's interesting now is AI has brought all this back around full circle for me because it's always constantly talking about what is safe cognition, what is safe thought, what is safe intelligence, what is knowledge. I mean, fundamentally, knowledge is a violation of privacy. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to hold in balance. That's why ethics is so interesting. If you're in the business of security because of technology to protect privacy, and you're in the business of technology to improve knowledge, you have a inherently contradictory role, and you have to figure out how to present knowledge without violating privacy. Mm. So that hasn't been around because people just didn't understand, fundamentally weren't educated in ways that gave them the full discipline of humanities outside of specializations. Hmm. There's a there's a line of criticism, right, saying that the industry is using ethics in this moment to sort of push away the regulators, which are now ramping up the the regulatory efforts to to establish legal frameworks around personal data, AI, and other stuff. So, for the critics or. The critics are saying, you know, oh, they're just using ethics now to sort of say, okay, we got this, we've found the the ethics guidebook, or we're gonna play it. Please don't, please don't yeah. use any legal, <laughs> uh, legal laws or legal frameworks to to regulate this field. Yeah, there's a saying in America: "Lipstick on a pig." Yes, is, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a risk. There's three things here. I mean, first of all, in classic ethics, in philosophical thought you have inherited versus controlled rights. So if it's inherited, it means you're getting from a third party some sense of what's right and wrong, whereas if it's controlled, you decide what's right and wrong. Now, I give lots of lectures around the world in private companies, very, very large ones, small ones, everything, as well as in academia. I always try to start my lectures by presenting the choice to people whether they want to live in an inherited rights world or a controlled rights world. And almost always we get one person out of the audience that says controlled rights. That's, that's tyranny. That means they get to decide always what's right and wrong, no matter what they do, but they still find it attractive. And mm -hmm. even though only one person out of the audience, no matter what size the audience, tends to be this person, I'm sure more people think about it. What tends to happen inside a lot of companies, to your point, is they have a sense of inherited rights, but they really want controlled rights. So they bring someone in who supposedly brings in the inherited rights framework, and then they just say, okay, we're making all the right decisions internally because we have this 
symbolic person who represents the outside world and the way they think. And this really gets into, you know, it gets into really interesting, like, anthropological views of what culture is. You know, if you have conflict, the way the United Nations works even, between different things, views of how enforcement should work, who ultimately decides. Mm. In an inherited rights system, ultimately you go to court and you bang it out until you decide this is the way that everyone's going to work. Mm. And enterprises are very good at that. You know, if the CEO says do things and you don't do things, you get fired. Mm. But they don't want that inherited right to be outside the CEO, and that's where you get into trouble, because if the Environmental Protection Agency shows up, or the FDA, or the, all these organizations show up and say, hey, what you're doing is really hurting people, that CEO needs to listen to those outside authorities. And that's where, if they shift to a controlled mindset, or a controlled rights mindset, they just cut it off and they say, we're not going to play. The United States in particular has a problem with this. And there's no better example than the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which they refuse to ratify. The only country in the world that refuses to ratify a convention that protects children from harm, which now includes digital harms, mm. is the United States. Mm. And they do that on the basis of extremist, conservative, evangelical Christians who say that nobody should have a hand in how they handle their children. Nobody. They will not allow any inherited rights from anywhere about the safety of children. And that's, that's the only country in the world that makes that kind of claim. I think Somalia was the last country to, to ratify before the United States was alone. Mm. It's fascinating. So, mm. so what you find in a lot of co companies trying to say that they're being ethical is if they're honest, they're pulling in and asking for criticism, asking for third parties, asking for people to come in and tell them what they're doing wrong because that's the way they improve to a outside standard. It's mm. like going to a competition and racing with other people and having a judge tell you whether you won or lost. Mm. That's a better way to improve technology. But some companies, they buy the judges, they buy the field, and then no matter what happens, they pay them all to tell them they won. Mm. And that's classic dictatorship. Because that's what that that's what my follow up question is is basically so again internet from the beginning was was uh, heralded as this multi stakeholder environment right yet in practice in in real world we can see that there are there's a very small group of actors calling the actual shots and then everybody else follows or doesn't follow suit be it from from countries you have you know difference between the china and eu and um, uh, the us be it the the companies so facebook amazon apple and and others how do you how do you see this issue of you know stakeholders not having uh, equal not even rights but equal access to to uh, to mechanisms of power uh, when the regulation of of the internet is in question or self-regulation yeah it's a, a fascinating question because it's so multidisciplinary i mean on the on the technical side if you launched a website in 1994 it was you putting content on the web and i was there for that i actually did some early websites i'll give you an example where we launched a car dealership in a small town in the Midwest, and Honda sent us a cease and desist letter saying, how dare you advertise Hondas on the internet? You're not Honda. And we said, but we're selling Hondas. We were just building websites. And it was really interesting because the lawyers didn't get it. They were like, how dare you sell Hondas for Honda? Mm -hmm. You're not Honda. You're the dealer. <laughs> Today, this would not be an issue at all. But back then, how dare the individual use technology to do the thing that Honda would benefit from was a really complicated question. Mm. The same the same thing happens today. Like how how dare people set up a site that expresses their independent view? 
it goes back to the controlled versus inherited. Have they done it from a perspective of a member of a society from an inherited rights framework? They're not going to violate certain norms of harm. Mm -hmm. Or are they doing it because in the systems they're in, they can't possibly survive in an inherited model and they have to control the right, wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it comes back to. So that's the first aspect of is the individual ever allowed to express themselves? Some societies much more than others. There are some societies that allow freedom to silence others more than they allow people to speak for themselves. Complicated mm -hmm. question, but that's the first. And technology really represents that in many, many ways, because if I can buy a typewriter, if I can buy a printer, if I can buy a server to run my web, you know, it's all sort of the same thing. I can publish content and push it out on my own. Mm -hmm. Now, the second part of that is I think the the regulations, using it as a broad term, like low, lowercase r, the, the regulations that affect people, especially the big players, are different. You'll find that incentives for people to change are always mixed and, and vary. Microsoft, for example, was hit with US government lawsuits, was just mm -hmm. taken to court, and that really changed them. You can see the DNA of Microsoft is different today because they talk about how they they realize that working with government is so important to the success of the company and the health of the society that they're working within. Brad Smith, vice president or president, I forget now, but Brad Smith, is, as he's risen, risen over the years, has become an outspoken advocate for government regulation as what made Microsoft better. Mm -hmm. Now, also, Microsoft ignored security for so long that in 2001, they had a memo famously that said, whoops, we totally blew this didn't really hold themselves accountable in the way that they really paid down all the debt. And SolarWinds is an example of that. We have huge breaches today. But they changed because they had this attack, this incident that really took them down. Their hubris was lowered. And, and Google experienced the same thing just by way of comparison, right? Google had the Aurora breach, which really changed their tune. Before their breach, they literally were coming out, engineers, lots of executives saying, who needs government? We're going to move to a world where corporations are what decide your membership, not nations, not states. Mm -hmm. And after the Aurora breach, they went to the NSA and they went to the State Department and said, help, help, China's attacking us. Mm -hmm. So they suddenly became very aware of the need for representations of humans that are not corporate backed or not run by advertising agencies. So it does change people. I mean, you do see shifts in these powerful centralized organizations and i can give many 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 more examples of this but just the bottom line is the core of it is who should be allowed to speak and can you present that to them in a way that fits within their inherited framework of rights for whatever their environment is and then two if they amass power do they do it in a way that's unrepresentative that's out of sync with the forces of play whether they be threats or whether they be regulators and how do you get them back into alignment and it varies by Mm. You've mentioned Microsoft and cooperation with, with the state, and we've already mentioned Google and Apple and other big players. But these are exactly, you know, these are big players who have the, the lawyer capacity, if not for any other aspect. They have money, they have time, they have, uh, they have all this energy that can be focused on cooperating in a nice way with the regulators, which can be also an ugly word for saying they influence the you know legal frameworks that are then uh, written um, to be um, to be let's say uh, Microsoft or Apple friendly right 
So what does that mean for, for the other players that don't have that kind of manpower and, and energy behind them and they can't influence the, the, the vote, so to speak, uh, once when the vote is, is being passed on, let's say, certain regulatory measures? Isn't that another, you know, situation where they, you know, the power isn't um, yeah. equally divided? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a question of corruption, right? Or oligarchy, you know, is the state in bed with the corporations for its own benefit of a small elite as opposed to the general population that's meant to be represented by the government? And that's, that's a question really fundamentally about the structure and fabric of any government, how it's able to hold back particular small interests mm. over very powerful interests. And the United States, as an example, has had a, a long history of problems with that, but also in corrections from that. You know, teapot dome scandal is just one example in history where you have massive corruption and all kinds of issues, but it comes back from that solving in new ways. Another example that's interesting is how there was a lot of labor unrest in meatpacking plants. And this guy wrote a book called The Jungle mm. saying, saying laborers are not being treated right. The same sort of thing you see in the news today where Google employees are saying we're not being treated right in these technology firms, meatpacking plants, you know, labor needs representation. And the regulation of the time became the FDA, which was a food and drug administration that made food safer, didn't protect workers. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there's conspiracy there between the meatpacking plants and the government, but there is the issue around, they try to find a way that's best for people in their own minds. In other words, the way of saying, everyone thinks they're the good guy, right? <laughs> you talk to an Apple, you talk to Microsoft, you talk to Google, they're not going to the government saying, we want to be evil and we want to do bad things to people. Some people do that, but that's a rarity. What you instead find is a lot of people coming at government saying, we're the good guys, you give us authority and we'll do, we'll make the world a better place. So the question becomes if they're in competition with each other or not, because if they're all in conspiracy, something's wrong usually. Usually there's competition because they're actually trying to outgun each other to do good. And that's where you have some protection, even in an open market, not a totally free market, but in an open market, you have competition between people who are trying to compete to be the best at doing good. Mm. It's funny you mentioned uh, Sinclair. I mean, he, he was one of the good guys that got recognition a little bit too late, right? In in his time, he was perceived as this weirdo who kept, you know, investigating stuff that shouldn't be or wasn't worth investigating. He has he had trouble publishing um, uh, its um, its uh, articles. He was, you know, sort of like shunned by the by the media industry. Um, how do you see the, the, the current situation? Who's who's Upton Sinclair in 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 today's time? Uh, if we try to find a character or an organization at least that is a great question that goes to <laughs> is there a you know it's publishing a book a book was a means of transiting information it was data portability yeah books exist because the data portability was so bad when the printing press was first invented so today we may need less of data portability being around the sort of lift and shift or scoop as it was called in Hadoop days even recently, mm -hmm. and more about real-time analysis, the stream of constant information coming in. So who has the best constant stream of update information about what's going on? May not be one person, but lots of people. And then there's a mm -hmm. question of the aggregate. I mean, I can give you specific examples of you know cutting edge research that's uncovering scary things. Like I think Citizen Lab, which I've worked with internally as well, I've been in the backside, been 
fortunate enough to go in and do some cool investigation work with them, uh, particularly around a mobile device that was meant to save or protect children from harm, but ended up actually exposing them to cyber war, exposing the entire country to cyber war uh, mm. in very bad ways. So Citizen Lab does really interesting stuff in Toronto. And I think it makes itself out to be sort of a journalism slash investigatory slash rights you know, organization, but there's lots of those, you know, so Human Rights Watch is an example. There's um, Amnesty International, you know, ACLU, and they're all over the spectrum as well. But these are organizations that are meant to be publishing things. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law, isn't it? SPLC mm -hmm. Center. So, so they do an amazing job of keeping track of, you know, abuses of technology or where groups are forming and functioning inside, uh, exposing things that you otherwise probably wouldn't see. There's the traditional media as well, but the the thing about traditional media is, like books, it's still lift and shift, as opposed to sort of constant updates and constant reveals. So I think there's two parts of that question. One is, you know, should we be focusing on a single person or, or shifting to where we have a, a feed made up of multiple voices? And two, in that new context of being able to do queries on live data all the time, is there a place that has consistently good content? I guess it also matters if these actors have access to, you know, sources of power or sources where they can actually make a, an actual difference, right? I mean, you can you can shout and and report on on let's say hate speech or propaganda funding or fake news or whatever as long as you want until you know a company decides, okay, we're going to include these guys into the the process of of solving this issue like Facebook, Twitter, and, and let's say other other digital giants, right? Yeah, and that's been one of the problems, right? So before 2008, I wasn't doing a lot of public speaking because I was inside all of these companies doing all sorts of things to try to make them better, save them from themselves. And afterwards, I finally decided, mostly prompted by other people, like to come out and be much more vocal. But it's a hard, hard decision to give up the inside role and to balance the inside and outside. But what I see lately, though, is... I think other people have written about this better than I have even uh, this habit of people to go and participate in the bad behavior and then exit, call themselves a canary and try to build a career on <laughs> saying it's bad when they didn't really do anything inside to make it good. They just were participating in it. It's almost like, you know, I, I liken it to the captain of the Titanic giving a speaking tour on lifeboats. It's like, you're the guy who sunk the ship, right? Why are you creating a speaking tour career on being somebody who really meant well? It just doesn't, it doesn't wash with me. But, and but, it's, it's particularly yeah, bad because, finish. just let me finish that point. It's particularly bad yeah. because there are other people who the whole time have been saying what's right. They didn't have an epiphany. They're not trying to save themselves and say I'm a reformed alcoholic. They're actually people who the whole time have said slavery is bad. Why are you enslaving people? True, but but to play to play a devil's advocate or or someone who who's been in the let's say digital industry and is now working on 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 the fringe of it or is now looking uh, in from the from the outside, do you think the the current tempo of work in in the digital industry, um, you know, matters or influences influences the a person to to have this moment of even self-realization, you know? So you can you can sit back, look at the things that you're doing, and say, "Oh my God, what the hell is happening here?" 
right? Everything is is happening so fast. You know, you you when you're in a in a we we talked about you know specialization and and focuses on particular task. You're not even aware of everything that goes, let's say, behind the curtain or that goes in the in the product chain. Is that really you know something that that uh, that uh, can be let's say forgiven for a person to to sort of wake up and say okay wait you know now i see the problem and you know i was a part of it well i don't want to weigh in on forgiveness because i feel like that's something that others and everybody should like chime in on whether they forgive people or not whether it's sincere or not but i want to weigh in on the idea that you know racism is a good example of this racism is learned right children aren't mm. racist they learn from their parents to be racist and in a lot of cases parents try to make it as hard as possible try to make them carry on the legacy of racism that they themselves feel that's where it really comes from so if you see reform in violent extremist groups with race being just an example of one form of extremism you you see people reform themselves in ways that they they renounce themselves and say and it usually comes from them being exposed to things that just to them are unavoidably obviously proving their whole structure wrong I've dealt with this myself. I've entered extremist groups. I've infiltrated them. And I've been told I was raised to believe that I should kill this person. But somehow now I don't believe it because I know these people and they don't seem that bad at all. Mm. So that, that kind of recognition that you've been wrong and you need forgiveness because, wow, you were misled and you want to do good, I think centers around the fact that you renounce entirely the system and you focus your efforts on ending it and doing good. I mean, that to me is a way, that's a path. Mm. That makes sense. But what I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a lot of that. What I'm seeing is a lot of, I was inside and I, and I, I think it's bad, but not really reflecting on themselves and saying, I was bad. I was a terrible person. I was totally misled. And I can't believe that I was, you know, allowed to much more like what I did was in the past and what I'm doing now is present. So let's just forget about what I did mm. and let's talk about how I'm a great person now. But I don't want to get too much into that. I mean, it's, I just feel like what we see to your point, I guess, really the point is inside tech organizations, mm -hmm. and this has been written about forever, right? I think Dostoevsky, everybody's written about this. The, the, the idea that people can do great harms because they're in a group where everybody normalizes it is the problem. And a lot of tech firms, like I've been inside the biggest social media platforms talking to the heads of a lot of these decisions. And they just think, for example, I've seen them say, we have to let the Nazis speak. I mean, there's just freedom of speech here. Mm. And then you say, okay, but what about these women? And they say, nah, shut them down. And it's like, I don't know how many people recognize this, especially when there's a lot of noise around how they're anti-conservative. It's just completely not true. What you find is the normative behavior in these tech companies reflects a lot of the mistaken normative behavior of American history, which is expected. Mm. So, if you find, for example, that Americans are really willing to let Nazis march in the street, but they're not allowing women to show their breasts in public to breastfeed. When you go inside a Twitter and you sit down with management and you say, hey, we really need to let women show their nipples. They say, what? No, there's no way we're going to allow that to happen. You say, well, we should we should really shut down this violent speech that leads directly to harms and people committing suicide and death. And they say, well, you know, we probably should because there was a Supreme Court decision that says that that's really good speech. None of this is like, these are not conversations that are based in any real philosophical, deep cognitive ability or real study. It's mostly based on this sort of just feeling of being inside a group that protects these decisions because that's the way things are decided here. 
-hmm. And that's the problem. That's where racism really fits in is people are racist because everyone around them is racist until they meet people that aren't fitting the thing that they were told and start to empathize and start to realize this whole framework is wrong. But it's mm -hmm. been very difficult to present inside tech firms what is right because a lot of tech firms are built on profit models that stem from doing what has always been done. That's mm -hmm. where profit comes from, is doing what's expected and doing what's always been done, not from mm -hmm. true domain shifts. Mm. Before we, we move on to the last subject, I just wanna, I just wanna um, hear your thoughts on, on, so we have a lot of, it seems at least, we have a lot of cases of developers or even um, uh, business, uh, business people from, from the tech industry in the recent years, you know, standing up, speaking up, warning about, you know, things that are, that are going behind the curtain. Is that something that can influence the the path of of the industry going forward? Are these, let's say, initiatives for for um, uh, let's say unionizing at, at Amazon or developers standing up at, at Google and you know warning about AI discrimination and and algorithmic injustice? Is this something that that can influence the debate, or is it just something for the you know media to pick up? and then uh, drop off uh, a week later. Well, it's interesting in the sense that it, real reform comes from the companies themselves saying they're making the changes. You know, Brad Smith being the head of Microsoft and saying we're going to do things the right way is what you want to see. And not just lip service, again, because everyone calls themselves the good guy. But if you, if you see the shift in the organization coming from people inside the organization, much, much more meaningful. Then, and they have to be measured on actual steps taken, right? Not just lip service, but actually like what they did. So measure the diversity count, for example. If they don't have diversity numbers up after saying they're committed to diversity, doesn't mean a thing. So that's, it's an interesting way to look at the problem being, we're not seeing people inside doing it. They have to quit in order mm -hmm. to do it. And if you look historically at something uh, like piracy, for example, pirates essentially were people saying we're sick with the British or the Spanish crown. We can't live in these conditions. We quit. So labor mm -hmm. dispute. And then the pirates set up basically democratic ships where they shared in wealth and they had elections. Now, history has framed them improperly as the villains, when in fact pirates were essentially people who were seeking freedom and liberty and egalitarianism. Granted, they might have done some exploitation and criminality, but nothing compared to what was being done by the crown, which mm -hmm. was official exploitation and mass murder and genocide and, you know, rampant burning and destruction of land, even though they weren't even authorized by the crown. They were only authorized to do violence at sea, but they went ahead on land and destroyed whole cities. So, you know, are these people exiting the empire, if you will, like the pirates trying to say there's a better way, going to be vilified as well for being people who are taking advantage? There's a risk of that. But I think fundamentally what we need to see is change from within the empire not from people leaving the ship, starting their own operation, and then trying to say, there's a better way out here. So we'll see that shift when they adopt. And this is what's interesting about Solid, really, about the whole reinvention of, or reinvigoration, I guess a better word, of the web, is saying, we don't expect these, these services to disappear. We expect these services to function better. And so when they adopt a better model, because it's based around human centricity, then we'll see real change as opposed mm. to trying to destroy them and replace them, make them operate in ways that are safe and beneficial. Mm. I think this is, this is the perfect intro or outro into, into my last question. So uh, I guess we saw some 
movements in the in the past year in regards to you know digital regulation model the power of, of content platforms uh, if you have a crystal ball handy what's going to happen in in 2021 what's the what are some big issues that are going to to come on 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 the agenda in in this year well this year in particular in particular i see a lot of movement towards ways of making identities secure. So there's a lot of push around, which we've seen for a while now, but I really see an emphasis from regulators around making identities safer. And that's to some degree what we're talking about with books versus real-time information speech. You know, the sort of lift and shift. Data needs to be portable. This goes back 20 years, 30 years, but they're really pushing now on data to be portable, uh, identities to be safe and secure. And I think two or three, four years out from now, what we're going to be seeing is much more of the question of real-time access to information as opposed to just making it portable by lift and shift. It's going to be, how do I get access in ways that is current and represents the human in the current state? In other words, Solid gives you this capability that you're able to actually query the world and say, who has, who's above a certain age, who's below a certain age, what's the poverty level, what's the uh, health, what's the status of the water, what's the status of the air, right? That's much more what the human condition should be able to, uh, and artificial intelligence even, should be able to benefit from most, as opposed to where we're at right now, which is a necessary step, but proving the point or regulators establishing the line in the sand that you shouldn't be violating people's identities, impersonating them, stealing them. You shouldn't be taking their data claiming ownership of it when it's not yours, it's theirs. Mm. The, the right to delete really is a way of saying, this isn't yours, you need to get rid of it, it's mine. But ultimately it's terrible because you're losing the data in some ways, as opposed to saying, hey, this is mine and I'm gonna make it right. I'm gonna, when people query it, they're gonna get the right answer as opposed to the wrong answer, which is different than no answer at all because I got rid of the wrong answer. Mm. So I think that yeah, this year, what I see a lot of is focus on verified credentials. I see a lot of focus on ways of tying keys to credentials for encryption. And that's that's the exciting stuff that we're working on, um, but with an eye on getting it to a, a real-time flow. Mm. And just one one more question regarding this, this decentralization. How do you see the role of the user? So every time you, you talk to um, somebody or you talk to, to, um, to people who are trying to change the the ways things are done, they put great effort on on the end user, right? The end user has has rights, the end user is the owner, the end user has to have control. But in real life, you can see that, you know, this this uh, this idea of a rational user that handles everything on its own, it doesn't pan out, right? So users are, let's say, dumb, users are lazy, users want everything cheap and fast. So is that like a like an idea of that to change the web we need a new we need a new version of of human or do you see users adapting to this decentralization and uh, different ways things are are handled in decentralized web I find transportation is one of the best metaphors for this if you will it's the best really models transportation is the insight that led to communications if you will it's it's you know we we build networks on the same model that we built roads for thousands of years 
And in that sense, should people be allowed to drive their own car? Should people be allowed to work on their own car? If you allow people to replace the brakes on their own car and they're on the road, how do you know that car isn't going to run into people with no brakes? Are they capable as drivers? Are they impaired because they're drunk? Are they? And this is the same thing we're running into with technology and the internet. It's the idea that you can allow people the right to repair and the right to operate when they're fundamentally flawed. Shouldn't you just put everybody on a train that's owned by the state and controlled and all the routes are planned? Now, the reality is somewhere in between there is the perfect mix because in a lot of cases you get natural monopolization and you want one train track and you want one 500 mile an hour plane or train that gets people between arteries and then there's the last mile where you have people do a lot of independent stuff. Ideally, these would be like small electric vehicles, zero pollute, right? So there's a lot of both nudge if you take the most you know, liberal view of economics, you would have just some nudges to get people doing the right things. Mm -hmm. And then and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have controlled decisions, because if you let just nudge, then you get bad economics, because you end up getting people who have the most power having the most effect because their nudge turns into the most dramatic changes, mm -hmm. as opposed to what's best for society. Mm -hmm. You don't just want like big bullies who can turn a nudge into the way they want to see the world. You want representation of people who sometimes can't represent themselves the same way, don't have the resources, who have been disadvantaged historically. Mm. In other words, you both have the, the you both have the requirement to put people in a position where they can do the most good, but also prevent them from doing harm. And mm. that's a responsibility on both ends of people to be good citizens, which is a complex topic in itself. You know, mm. to be a good driver, to be a good care uh, or maintenance person about the vehicles you drive. And the state has a role in that as well as they do inspections, you know, they do smog tests, for example. Uh, but there's, it's, it's a deep topic, but I think the best way of presenting it is people are flawed at both ends. And Uber is a good example of the, the absolute wrong way to go about all of this. It did everything wrong. It's like somebody, <laughs> it's like somebody looked at history and decided to, to repeat all of the worst possible mistakes when they started Uber. It was just such an ignorant, backwards technology play, and it caused untold harms. I could go on for hours about how they got everything wrong. From from the 1600s forward, we've had shared rides, and they literally repeated all of the worst possible mistakes. So, yeah, people do bad things, but they do them at the individual level, but they also do them at the mass level. And you don't want to be an Uber. You might want to be somebody who forgets to change the oil in your car. But but just to just to play the devil's advocate once once more. So Uber did everything wrong, yet in 2021 and 22, we're still seeing countries that are, you know, playing into their into their business model or trying to to enable uh, Uber to to come to um, to their market. So coming from Slovenia, we we have we had or we still have a big discussion, you know, with the Ministry of Transportation that wants to um, uh, adjust Uh, our legal framework to enable Uber to to come into our market. So after all this, you know, bad publicity and uh, um, uh, horror show that that the gig economy um, had all across the world, there are still countries in in EU <laughs> to this day that are trying to you know politicians that are seeing uh, um, a great opportunity for for Uber to arrive on on our market and you know, do what it does best. <laughs> yeah. Well, but 
what the only thing so let me put it this way uber did something right which was to create a better distribution model using the web and an app mm. but they didn't even really invent that right so a distribution of goods using an app on the web is kind of what a lot of people do it's it's but that's what they did for taxis essentially so mm. if you wanted to call a taxi the, the crazy thing to me though is that share car services in new york city for example were literally seven buttons. You would push seven numbers on your phone, a person would answer, and you'd say, I need a car at this time to pick me up and go to this place, and they'd send a car. Mm. If you use the Uber app, you push more than seven times on the interface to do the same thing. Mm. You haven't really improved anything at all. And it gets worse when you look at the fact that after you called them, they would put a screensaver on your phone to make you think that something was happening that was totally fake. They charged you more if your battery was lower which is mm. completely wrong. They increased prices if there was a severe incident, like a terror threat or a snowstorm in your area. So mm. they're penalizing people and upcharging them for situations outside of their control that were life-threatening, that would make them less likely to survive. They were giving people a false sense of reality in order to charge um, them more. They were manipulating them into paying a higher price based on information that really wasn't available to them, like battery charge. I mean, you could plug in next to you, but maybe you didn't, you just had a low battery, you didn't care. Mm. Uber doesn't know that. They're just charging you more because they think you're low on battery and you must be desperate for a ride. So what they did right was they gave you a distribution model that's based on the web. And you could write an app to distribute car service without having to do anything with Uber. That's what's so crazy about it to me. Because once you involve Uber, this is a company that from the beginning, the DNA of the company was wrong and mm. about everything. And the way they went about all the social problems they ran into was wrong repeatedly. If somebody complained that they were raped or violently offended in an Uber, Uber went after the person complaining as a threat mm. to their business, mm. not after the drivers. It's mm. crazy. So yeah, I would say that over hundreds and hundreds of years, if you want to study how to do this, you would look at you would look at Paris, which invented the bus. You would look at London, which essentially invented the the taxi or the hacker, as it was called, and you would look at hundreds of years of lessons from these models or in Africa or around the world for that matter. If you look at the micro bus and the way it's manifested, you would find better answers, far better answers. And then you just apply a distribution app algorithm to the web and you'd be in light years ahead of where Uber is. Mm. True. And and one more question and then we'll we'll wrap up, I promise. So how do you see or do you see in your role as an AI ethicist, ethicist uh, the the role of, of human rights uh, in 2000, let's say 21, 22, or going forward, do you see a, a role of human rights increasing uh, when politicians or and companies are going to discuss uh, digital policies or, or let's say internet policies? Oh yeah, in fact, it's weird to me that I see people with philosophy degrees flocking into tech now as though they have a career. I love that. When I studied philosophy, nobody said you can go work at a tech firm. I mean, the internet didn't even really exist as an option. Even though I spent my entire career in it, I had to fight my way from the very, very beginnings. And not even, I couldn't mention that I studied philosophy. No one would take me seriously, give me a job. Mm -hmm. Now it's the opposite. I think that people are saying, who here understands what these users are asking for? They're telling us they want to know if we're ethical. They're telling us they want to know threat modeling you know, how we've thought about threats. And in one case, I got asked, for example, what are you doing about censorship? 
right? That doesn't come from a computer science training background or even a, a STEM background. Censorship is a deep problematic discussion around social norms and acceptability, human behavior, sociology, anthropology, right? Censorship is a very interesting, fascinating space. Mm. So yeah, I see the move in regulation. Well, one, a lot of people who are in regulation have a much more technical background now. That's just given. People know mm. what the internet is and how the internet is. So that's going to happen. But the other is that I see people in the humanities and especially philosophy racing into tech. And it's, it's very, very, very encouraging. I, mm. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Ending on a positive note is, is very hard for our uh, podcast where we deal with uh, things <laughs> like human rights, but this is like the perfect stop. So we're going to end here. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I wish you all the best in, in, in RUPT and in promoting, um, um, let's say, humanities in, in the digital sector. And uh, yeah, thank you for talking. All right. Thank you. Great to be here. Take, take care.